More than a month into the war on Gaza, we're starting with the coverage in the U.S. Freedom of expression is under the gun in the land of the free. In the U.K., Canada and Australia, the journalistic resistance starts with the basics, the terminology in use. And India is generating its own kind of Gaza coverage. It is one-sided and at times dangerous. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert. As Israel's ground invasion enters a dangerous new phase, we're focusing on the one country with the power to stop the carnage in Gaza, the United States. Close to 11,000 Palestinians have been killed. The UN has called the war zone a children's graveyard. The living find themselves trapped among decaying bodies in the debris. American officials continue to stand by Israel in public. When the cameras are gone, they're counseling restraint, or so they say. The four-hour humanitarian pauses that Israel put into effect on Friday are what passes for progress. That still leaves another 20 hours a day for the Israeli military to bomb civilians fleeing their homes. Across American news networks, the argument that Israel's mass slaughter of civilians is a justifiable act of self-defense often goes unchallenged, and there has been far too little discussion of a ceasefire. Some U.S. media outlets, though, have produced powerful accounts of this asymmetrical war. But there is an unmistakable, undeniable chill, with too many voices silenced. Criticism of Israel can keep you off the American airwaves, out of print, or even cost you your job. Israel sees the parades and the rallies for the ceasefire, and they see no parades and no rallies for the return of the hostages or the removal of Hamas. The United States is the armor of Israel. The United States is the diplomatic protector of Israel. That's why the discussion here matters a great deal. We're in a religious war here. I am with Israel. Do whatever the hell you have to do to defend yourself. Level the place. There's actually two conversations happening in the U.S. There's a popular conversation amongst people receiving their information directly from the ground. And they're completely different conversation amongst those who are consuming their information from more popular sources of media. Gaza is not now under siege. Israel has been under siege for 75 years. To understand how biased American media coverage of the war in Gaza can be, just turn on the television. You can see it in what is condemned and what is condoned, in who is dehumanized and who is not, in what is questioned and to what extent. Our newspapers, our journalists, our cable news networks are not pushing American officials enough. They're not asking them to condemn the Israeli prime minister talking about genocidal biblical verses to justify their military campaign. The goal is to destroy Hamas. Hamas is creating these casualties, not Israel. I don't think anyone's asking, well, some people may be asking they Israel are. to apologize, but that's not what I'm asking yeah. about. I don't think to this day there is a single editorial board um, in the United States that has actually called for a ceasefire in spite of the carnage. You know, you're actually seeing some Israeli press take stronger and bolder stances as opposed to newspaper editorial boards here in the country that have more or less fallen in line with what the State Department's party line is. You have seen um, American politicians like Marco Rubio or Nikki Haley 
using genocidal language about Gaza. And I'll say this to, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, finish them. Marco Rubio said, I don't think there's any way Israel can be expected to coexist or find some diplomatic off-ramp uh, with these savages. And neither of those comments were treated with the kind of shock they deserved to be treated with. Americans were among those horrified by the gruesome images they saw on October 7th, after Hamas's attack that killed more than 1,400 Israelis. Since then, too many in the U.S. media have been taking their cues from the Biden administration. It's insistence that what Israel is doing, despite the killing of more than 10,000 Palestinians, somehow remains an act of self-defense. Almost every military analyst has said that a ceasefire could give Hamas that opportunity to regroup and carry out future attacks. More than two-thirds of Americans now want a ceasefire. It is a growing movement that is insufficiently reflected in the mainstream media commentary, which often draws the line well short of that. What about Israeli officials that, I, that I've talked to about these calls for a ceasefire? They say that just gives Hamas time to regroup. Interviewees tend to repeat the Israeli media's talking points on Hamas, hospitals, and human shields. The storing of munitions, all kinds of explosives, under hospitals, under refugee camps, under civilian targets. The use of civilians uh, as really just tools of war um, by Hamas. Those are claims that Israel has made many times before, but have never been verified. On the question of representation and who gets to be heard, a body speaking for Arab and Middle Eastern journalists says it is deeply troubled by reports that journalists of Middle Eastern descent are being sidelined from reporting or commenting on the current war, while suggestions for nuance and precise language in reporting are being ignored in newsrooms. There's not necessarily, you know, this red line that editors have that, you know, you're not allowed to say this or you're not allowed to say that. There is a culture of fear in our institutions here about talking honestly and freely about this because whenever something that sheds light on human rights violations committed by Israel happens, there's usually a massive pushback campaign and people are afraid of it. Newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post have done an admirable job um, of reporting uh, on what's going on in Gaza. I've seen plenty of stories of the coverage of civilian harm in Gaza. Cable television, by contrast, you know, because of the sort of nature of cable TV, it's sort of short segments, kind of favoring sound bites. The sort of type of analysis you're getting there is just truncated and often um, misinformed. When taking in the coverage of Gaza, or even scrolling through their social media, Americans should consider who they are not hearing from. Voices that have been silenced, journalists who have been fired over the positions they have taken online. They include a New York Times Magazine writer who signed a joint letter opposing the Israel-Gaza war, was questioned by her editor about that, and ended up resigning. After the editor of Harper's Bazaar magazine tweeted that Israel's cutting off power to Gaza was inhuman, the magazine's parent company, Hearst, banned its employees from expressing personal political opinions on social media. This goes beyond news outlets, into the art world. The New York-based magazine Art Forum fired its editor-in-chief after he signed a petition calling for a ceasefire 
one that neglected to condemn Hamas's attack on October 7th. It seems like the top executives of these uh, corporate media outlets are actually in a pitched battle with the producers who want to tell a different story. I have been blacklisted by several outlets, as I've been told by producers. My clips have also been censored, and even though they've aired live, have not been posted on their websites. The explanations for it is that I either made the anchor look bad or that I'm too advocative. None of the reasons provided have to do with, I said something that wasn't true or I was uh, inflammatory in any way. It was literally other reasons in order to craft a particular kind of story where we can express empathy for Palestinian lives, but not point the finger about why they are being killed in a genocidal campaign and who is doing it. To express support for Palestine brings many different risks. It risks you um, being ostracized within the broader media world. It risks you not getting uh, career opportunities. It risks you being on the front page of a tabloid newspaper, um, you know, and labeled a terrorist sympathizer. And that is reflected in both the coverage from the last month and also the broader climate of repression that we have seen in so many different areas of public life. After almost a month of locking the international media out of the war zone, and then disputing the reporting of Palestinians inside Gaza, Israel finally allowed some Western journalists to enter this past week under certain conditions. The reporters have to be embedded with Israeli forces that act as their protectors and ultimately their editors. As a condition to enter Gaza under IDF escort, outlets have to submit all materials and footage to the Israeli military for review prior to publication. I applaud CNN and others who are at least telling their audiences that their information is filtered by the Israeli state. CNN has agreed to these terms in order to provide you, the viewers, a limited window into Israel's operations in Gaza. But I think that they should have done more to push back against the conditions that first that they had to be embedded with the Israeli military and that second none of their coverage would be published without the approval of the state. So literally all that's filtering out is state propaganda. The population would be able to go from the north to the south surely and not freely in order to get the IDF to do what it needs to do in order to do demolish Hamas. And I think here it's incumbent upon audiences to exercise scrutiny. Why is Israel preventing a foreign press from entering? Good Morning America on ABC News where they said this was a rare, short and quite intense opportunity to see what the situation is like in Gaza on the ground. It's only rare if you are overlooking all of the journalism from inside Gaza, going towards the violence, not away from it, through unbearable conditions to actually bring the world these stories. I just was going to, uh, to give water to my grandma, and I was right here for a house there. Around three dozen journalists inside Gaza have been killed reporting through unimaginable personal, emotional trauma, losing their families and 
to erase all of that is very, very shameful. When you close your eyes at night, what is it you think about? That is not to dismiss some quality American news coverage of this war and its impact on Palestinian civilians. This CNN interview with a nurse who worked in Gaza will stick with viewers. There were children with just massive burns down their faces, down their necks, all over their limbs. And because the hospitals are so overwhelmed, they are being discharged immediately after. And Still, U.S. news output is pulling its punches on the scale of the killing, the mass displacement, the crimes against humanity. In examining this war, perhaps Americans need to reflect on some of their own colonial history to remember that all colonizers, including Americans, started out by occupying the land of the other. The fact that for most Americans, they cannot critically examine Israel also represents their own blind spots of understanding themselves as living within a settler racial colony, as benefiting from white supremacy on lands that are still colonized and not ceded by over 500 indigenous nations. Everything that we can critique Americans for failing to see in the humanity of Palestinians reflects their own inability to see themselves. So Palestine here is not an exception. The rule is a colonial framework and a liberal understanding that somehow we've overcome colonialism, which is not true. We continue to exist in an enduring colonial reality. The vast majority of mainstream news outlets in the U.S. are corporate-owned. Elsewhere, in the Anglosphere, though, publicly funded broadcasters are taking heat over their coverage of the Gaza story, and some of that, as Nick Muirhead explains, comes from within. First up, Richard, is the BBC in the UK. Rami Ruhayim, the network's correspondent in Beirut, sent an email to Director General Tim Davey expressing his concerns. He argued that historical context and significant information, including expert opinion that Israel's actions could amount to genocide, was either entirely missing or not being given due prominence. When Davey failed to reply to that email, Ruhayim shared it with the rest of his colleagues at the BBC. In Canada, a lawyer journalist had similar things to say about CBC's coverage. He interrupted a speech the network's CEO, Catherine Tate, was giving. You are not telling the truth as an organization about the genocide happening in Gaza before the eyes of the world. In Australia, more than 200 employees at ABC met to point out issues again over terminology and the network's reliance on Israeli military's talking points. They also called out ABC's refusal to use certain terms, such as occupation, apartheid and genocide, even invasion. But just back to the UK for a moment and an instance of journalism that rose to the challenge. Channel 4's Sekandar Kamani was embedded with the Israeli military in Gaza when they came across Palestinians fleeing the bombardment. We're not allowed by the military to go any closer. Israeli soldiers can prevent journalists embedded with them from interviewing Gazan refugees. What they cannot do is stop those news organizations from working with Palestinian reporters to tell that side of the story. Footage filmed on the Salahuddin Road by Palestinian journalists gives you a true sense of scale. And showcasing the scale of this tragedy is something Channel 4 has been very effective in doing. Thanks, Nick. Israel's Hasbara campaign, its PR effort to win diplomatic backing and shape public perception, 
is in overdrive these days. Not that it's really needed in places like India. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been crystal clear in his backing of this war. New Delhi says it sees it as an act of counterterrorism and self-defense. Just last month, when the UN voted in favor of a humanitarian pause, India abstained. Indo-Israeli relations have been on the upswing for the past few years now. The image of Israel as is a high-tech, prosperous nation that survives in a region populated by quote-unquote enemies resonates with many Indians. And they've been showing their support through posts online, rants on television, with some disinformation thrown in to skew how this conflict is understood. The Listening Post's Meenakshi Ravi now on the pro-Israeli messaging that's coming out of India and why it matters. Israel is at war. We didn't want this war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. Two days after Hamas fighters burst out of Gaza and carry out one of the most audacious attacks on Israeli territory, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office posts this video online. Hamas will understand that by attacking us, they've made a mistake of historic proportions. Within minutes, the message has thousands of shares and replies. Numerous Israeli posts demand Netanyahu's resignation. But there's another set of messages from Indians, and they are all in. So the responses from Indian accounts have been extraordinary, to say the least. Sometimes they put up posters in which they say, we stand with Israel. Sometimes they put graphics of two hands in a clasp painted with Israeli and Indian flags. Sometimes they've just tried to reflect on how this conflict in Gaza mirrors the kind of challenges that India faces security-wise. When we try to understand why is there such a widespread interest in India with respect to this particular conflict, one of the things is a shared experience of terrorism. When October 7th happened, Hamas's attack on Israel, in India, almost immediately parallels were drawn with the 26-11 experience, which were a major terrorist attack happening on the Indian city of Mumbai in 2008. To me, it had a lot of shades of our own 26-11. Uh, when you had terrorists coming from Pakistan on boats and uh, uh, creating the rampage that they did. This major space that Israel suddenly started to occupy in the Indian imagination was because that common threat was found. The same radical, jihadist, Islamist, terrorist thinking that Israel is a victim of, we are a victim of as well. Israel is fighting this war on behalf of all of us. Israel is fighting this war for you and me. New Delhi's support for Israel was swift and unequivocal. Prime Minister Narendra Modi tweeted in solidarity, and Indian news outlets, as though on cue, went on a war footing themselves. Channels that, just a few months earlier, had not seen fit to send their journalists to cover unprecedented violence in India's northeastern state of Manipur, they dispatched reporters all the way to Israel. Heavy bombs uh, are, are being used right now to take out the Hamas leadership and, you know, there is collateral damage. Proclamations of vengeance and calls for mass killing were issued from Indian news studios. Your policy should be 1,000 for 1. If you have 1,000 Israeli children, then 
दस लाख होने चाहिए In 1936 when Palestinians rose up against the British and their push for a Jewish state Nehru compared Palestine with India under colonial rule he talked about a gross betrayal of the Arabs by British imperialism Palestine was not an empty land it was well populated with little room for large numbers of colonists is it any wonder that the Arabs objected to this intrusion A little more than 10 years later when the United Nations voted to create the state of Israel there were only 3 non-Arab countries that voted against that resolution India was one of them times have changed so have the geopolitics historically speaking i mean i'm referring to the post 1947 era which is when we got independent india and israel haven't really had a very nice or cozy relationship that you probably see now that has come after 2014 which is when prime minister modi has come to power salam <laughs> 
And of course, one of the reasons is that both these countries have nationalistic governments, and that perhaps is one of the ideological uh, reasons why uh, you know the relationship has taken off. So relations between you know India and Israel did not start with Narendra Modi, but what happens in 2014 is Modi and Netanyahu meet properly, officially, at the UN General Assembly in New York. And they agree at that moment to, quote, tear down the remaining walls between the two countries. India purchases around 50% of all weapons sold by Israel per year. And India is also beginning to co-produce weapons. And they're working in agriculture, they're working in tech, they're working in cybersecurity. 2017 was the first time that an Indian Prime Minister actually travelled to Israel. And you see a kind of an um, you know, upgrade in the relations ever since. Hindustan and Israel are like a brother who has been living in the same time for the last 70 years. And after 70 years, when the first Bharatiya Pradhan Mantri's first step in Israel, the two brothers got hurt. In the past month, India has reaffirmed its support for the establishment of a Palestinian state the so-called two-state solution. Uh, towards establishing a sovereign, independent and viable state of Palestine. New Delhi has also sent medical and disaster relief aid to Gazans. How much of that made it past the Israeli blockade and into the Strip is not known. The war is a big story in India. And as it rages on, it is folding into another, even bigger domestic story. India is going into a huge election next year. And this issue will serve as a way to consolidate the Hindu nationalist base in India. It serves Modi very well electorally to be seen as close to Israel, as a country that's able to put Muslims in their place. But it's also about modernizing the state. The BJP has pushed this narrative that in order to be a strong, militaristic, global player, it had to be close to Israel. All this rhetoric around minorities and the domestic sentiment with respect to minorities, I think it is really not understood well. And it is often, you know, foreign media that falls for a certain kind of narrative. And that leads to a rather skewed understanding of how Indian societies actually operate. I think it is too soon to tell how this war would will play out when it comes to um, elections in India next year. But there are already posts that are claiming, you know, you have to stand up against Islamic terrorism. Otherwise, what would happen in India is what is happening in Israel. So for Hindus to protect themselves from this threat is to re-elect Prime Minister Modi. Just one final note. Those of you watching on YouTube may have had to jump through a few hoops to see our latest reporting having to sign in because of age restrictions, or simply not being recommended our content. Now, there are a number of reasons for that, but one of the biggest has to do with advertisers, companies that don't want their ads up against images of the suffering that this war has produced. We are not going to change the way we cover this story just to please an algorithm. So, if you value our journalism, please share it. It is more important than ever that these stories are heard. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.